at Palo Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Choose 18 months, no payments and no interest, or $300 off each window, $700 off a Pella entry system, and $1,000 off a patio door. Get details at PellaWI.com. Restrictions apply. See showroom for details. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Well, if anybody thinks the message about criminals committing crimes is getting out to the criminals or the people responsible for stopping them, I've got some bad news for you. It's not happening. So far, year to date, on the mean streets of the city of Milwaukee, well, the most recent numbers that the police department has posted, 43 homicides thus far this year. And, of course, we're, we're only two and a half months into the year. That, I do not believe, includes what happened over the weekend that we'll talk about in just a moment. But same time last year, and last year was an all-time record for homicides. There were 193 in the city of Milwaukee. Last year at this time, apples to apples, 22 homicides. This year, 43. And like I say, I actually think there's a couple more because I don't think what happened over the weekend is factored in. But but crime just continues to be out of control. Motor vehicle theft, we talk about this a lot. Last year, almost 10,500. This year... This year, there are more cars being stolen, same time this year as same time last year. Um, About 24 cars a day are stolen on the streets of Milwaukee. And that's just the city of Milwaukee. 24 cars a day. It is almost unthinkable that you could have this many cars that are stolen and nothing appears to be happening to stop it. So then what goes on over the weekend? Well, four people shot in Milwaukee during an argument following a party that was 4.30 a.m. Saturday night, Sunday morning. So it's early Sunday morning, 4.30 in the morning, party near 28th and Melvina. 24-year-old man sustained life-threatening injuries. 28-year-old woman and a 28-year-old man and a 23-year-old man were also hurt. In the hours after the gunfire, neighbors said they were too scared to talk because they are afraid of retaliation. Woman says she's, one of the neighbors says, you know, I'm almost numb to it because at night when it's quiet in my home, I hear the gunshots and I'm like, oh my God, who is it now? Who, what must it be like to live in neighborhoods where night after night after night after night, it is nothing but a a shooting gallery. And of course, the, the problem is it's very, very difficult for the police to make arrests because people are afraid to cooperate. And once they end up making arrests, we all know what happens once it gets into the Milwaukee County court system. All right. Then you have the other story <clears throat> that happens Sunday evening as well. Now, this is Sunday at 6 30 p.m. A crash near 77th and Lisbon left four people injured. Okay, well, well, Jeff, why, why are you talking about like a car crash in the same context you're talking about shootings? Well, here's the deal. <clears throat> Apparently about 6.30 in the evening, police have to come out and extricate one person from a vehicle. Four patients go to the hospital with injuries after the crash. Why did the crash happen? Well, according to Milwaukee police, the crash occurred after gunfire was exchanged between people in the two vehicles. Those two vehicles then collided with each other. 18-year-old man was taken to the hospital. Seven people were arrested, an 18-year-old woman and six males ranging in age from 15 to 20. So, okay, let, let's set the stage here. Sunday night at 6.30, 
you have two cars that are driving down the street and they are shooting at each other. And then as a result of the barrage of gunfire, the two cars crash into each other and then people end up in the hospital. I would describe the streets of Milwaukee like the wild, wild west. But as I have said before, that would be an insult to the wild, wild west. Because I don't know that you had just car- horses that would ride through the main streets of town and people just indiscriminately shoot at each other from their horses. But yet that is precisely what happened happens in the streets of Milwaukee. And then our news was talking about this earlier. Um, Earlier this morning, there was a 19-year-old woman who was shot and killed. So there's just no end to what is going on. And that brings us to the story of LaVon Lee Carter. And if you follow me on Twitter, I've got a link to this story. You can follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. And this is a story from Wisconsin Right Now, which is a website that's been doing a great job of, of chronicling the, the just the reason why stuff is so out of control once people get caught and it gets into the court system. Now, here's, here's the background on LaVon Lee Carter. <clears throat> 2002. Convicted of delivering and manufacturing cocaine, stayed prison term, served a year in the House of Correction. 2008, possession of a firearm by a felon and carrying a concealed weapon, one year and six months in prison. 2015, two counts of possession of a firearm by a felon. In this case, he got a six-year sentence with three of it in state prison and then put on probation. So, all right, that's the background. So let me take you to June 30th of 2020. A Milwaukee police officer observed Carter on North 26th Street with a handgun sticking out of his pants pocket. Officers lost visual contact with him as he walked through a yard. He was eventually stopped. He no longer had the gun. An officer located a gun with one 15 rounds, one in the chamber. As they attempted to take him into custody, he fought with four officers, one falling on him in an attempt to arrest him. He was eventually tasered. They then recovered the gun. And, of course, the gun had his DNA all over it. The shot spotter alert system, which tells you where gunfire has occurred, apparently that um, numerous records of shots in the area. So here you have a multiple felon who is in possession of a loaded handgun, flees from the police, struggles, is caught. Multiple convictions before for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. So what happened to him Well, he ends up in Milwaukee County Circuit Court in front of a judge. Her name is Jane Keyes. Um, She's in her first term. Sentenced to four years. Initial confinement is two years. Extended supervision is two years. And then wait for it. The court stays the sentence and places defendant on probation for three years. Probation for three years. Multiple felon. Two prior convictions for felon in possession of a firearm. Convicted of felon in possession of a firearm again. And he's put on probation. And you wonder why we cannot get control of violence. Do you really think putting this guy on probation is going to deter him from going back out on the streets with a gun? Seriously. And then, you know, these are the situations that ultimately... We see what happens. Somebody in a situation similar to this ends up committing a crime. Somebody gets killed. Somebody gets hurt. And then we all throw up our hands and say, how did this happen? This happens on a regular basis in Milwaukee County. And until the judges wake up and until the DAs wake up, it's going to continue to get worse, not better. This is Jeff Wagner back with more in just a minute. 
I'm so very pleased to have you with me today. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, is Pella Windows and Doors, Wisconsin. Looking to brighten up your home? Get in touch with the window and door professionals at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin to get started on making your property look and feel more incredible today. For more information, call 888-984-1344 or visit PellaWI.com today. All right, the, the big Washington story... Today is, of course, the startup of the Judiciary Committee hearings involving uh, Judge Brown Jackson, who is up for this position on the Supreme Court to fill in for Stephen Breyer. It is historic because, as Joe Biden had promised he was going to nominate a black woman for the role. And if confirmed, and my guess is she is going to be confirmed, she would, of course, be the first black woman Supreme Court justice. So it, it's a first and it is significant. It's, it is interesting to me, though, how this is playing out and some of the double standards that are there. As I have argued in the past over many Supreme Court appointments, I, I think both on the right and left. It's been a very, very dangerous trend to weaponize and politicize in the extreme the Supreme Court appointments. And and I've argued this when Donald Trump made appointments, and I argued it when Barack Obama made appointments, and when George W. Bush made appointments, and when Bill Clinton made appointments, because the, the bottom line is, as I frequently argue, elections have consequences. And one of the consequences of voting for president is that that president is going to have an opportunity to nominate people to the federal judiciary, federal judges, appellate court federal judges, and then occasionally Supreme Court judges. And if you elect Joe Biden, you know that he's going to nominate a certain type of judge with a certain worldview. You elect George W. Bush, you're going to get a different type of judge with a different type of worldview. And while I appreciate that the Senate has a role of advising and consenting, my feeling all along has been, and I argue this on both sides, that that unless the person that is nominated is clearly unqualified or has, I don't know, something significantly disqualifying in their background or is suspected of committing a crime or something like that, great deference should be given to the political appointments. That's why I I thought that when um, President Trump made a couple of his nominations, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, et cetera, that the idea that you had this, the left that was out there trolling, trying to dig up stuff from the guy's past that was really unproven and and really it, it wouldn't have stood up in a court of law. But here's what we're going to do. We're so opposed to, in this case, Donald Trump making the appointment that we're going to try to figure out a way to take a very, very otherwise qualified jurist and, and we're going to try to and it'll condemn them, and we're going to, even if they get on the bench, we're going to, they're going to be this huge cloud that, that's over them. I've always objected to that. So in this particular case, um, the bottom line is I, I think she should be given you know, great deference. At the same time, there, there's all these stories that are out there about how, well, for example, I'm looking at the L.A. Times. Jackson supporters gear up to protect her historic Supreme Court bid from racist, sexist attacks. So that's already the narrative that's being kicked out. If you question her about things, it, it's got to be because you're a racist or you're a sexist. Now, like I say, I, I think at least based on what I've been able to glean. I think she's 
qualified for the position. I don't think that there's anything particularly disqualifying out there other than the fact that you got to understand she is going to be a very, very liberal jurist, maybe the second most liberal jurist that, that's on the court um, next to Elena Kagan. But that that's OK. That That's what you get when you elect Biden. At the same time, I think people and the senators, it is very, very fair to examine her record, examine her record as a public defender, examine her record when it comes to sentencing people when she was on the federal bench, examine her record when it comes to the reasoning that she's used in appellate cases. And because you examine that record and you question her and you challenge her about this particular decision or that particular decision, it doesn't mean that it's racist. It doesn't mean that it's sexist it means that you are questioning you know what her thought process was and whether she got it right when she imposed this particular sentence or made these certain arguments that that that's fair now again i think she gets great deference and my guess is that she is going to be confirmed and i suspect there's probably going to be a lot of republicans that ended up voting to affirm her but but just because you push her on some of the decisions she's made and some of the reasoning that she's on record as saying, she doesn't, she shouldn't get a pass, I guess is my point, because she's a black female. I mean, that's why Joe Biden nominated her. He said he was going to find the most qualified black female he could. And like I say, again, I think she's she's going to turn out to be qualified and will be confirmed. But that doesn't mean that all of a sudden all the senators have to sit around and, and act like potted plants and not push her on some of her legal reasoning. And it doesn't mean that when they push her, oh, my gosh, this is because they're racist or sexist. No, they're, they're pushing her because they want to see if some of her rulings are outside the mainstream. That's a fair thing. Do I think she's going to get um, ultimately put on the bench? No question about it. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Hey, coming up in about 10 minutes, Joe Biden is going to be meeting with other NATO leaders. All right. Should he draw a line in the sand when it comes to ending the conflict in Ukraine? I'll explain that. and We'll discuss in just a couple minutes. Well, for some of you, this is probably pretty good news. For others, you might be a little bit disappointed. Anthony Fauci, who has been in semi-witness protection over the course of the last several weeks, you know, after being ubiquitous, you, you could not turn on television or turn on the radio or go on the internet without seeing Anthony Fauci giving two or three or four interviews every day and in many cases um, contradicting himself from Monday to Wednesday. Um, Anthony Fauci pretty much disappeared for the the better part of of a month. Not completely, but you you didn't see him on the major network news things. He was on YouTube channels and stuff like that. And I think one of the things that was going on is I think there was a concerted effort – that the Biden administration recognized that many people had moved beyond COVID and that the face of Anthony Fauci was not the message that they wanted to send, um, especially when you're trying to, I don't know, convince people that, okay, we, we've got to pivot away from COVID because we're looking at the poll numbers and we see that we're not doing very well with the American public when it comes to how we're handling COVID. Well, a lot of people thought maybe Fauci would, would be going away. Well, he, he's back. He appeared on, on Sunday doing, again, a number of his interviews talking once again about how we got to be prepared because we might have to go back into lockdowns and we might have to you know go back to you know mandatory masks all over said because again we we don't know where this covid pandemic is going to go but 
But the, the one thing that he did talk about is at the age of 81, they asked him the question, are you thinking about retiring? which I know some people would be extremely upset to hear. Other people would say, hallelujah, he, he's going to retire. Well, he says, well, you know, he, he, he'd like to, you know, he, he'd like to retire. But so far, he says, I, I got to stay until we get out of the pam- pandemic phase. And as long as we're in the pandemic phase, I just don't see that I can uh, I can I can leave. He said, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I, I want to make sure we're really out of this before I seriously consider doing anything different. And as far as I'm concerned, we are still in this. Let me translate. I'm not going anywhere. And George, you know, can I come back next Sunday to talk about it? So for anybody who was hoping that Anthony Fauci was going to go quietly into the good night at the age of 81, accept his laurels and then turn it over to somebody else, doesn't appear he's willing to step off the stage or out of the spotlight anytime soon. The next Milwaukee mayoral debate happens here, hosted by our partners at TMJ4 News. Tune in this coming Sunday at 6 p.m. as Cavalier Johnson and Bob Donovan discuss the issues that matter to you. Moderated by Charles Benson and Shannon Sims, you'll hear the entire debate live right here. The Milwaukee mayoral debate, Sunday at 6 o'clock on News Radio WTMJ. You know, I just, I have to tell you, and I, I, I understand conventional wisdom is that that Cavalier Johnson wins this in a walkover, and that may very well be the case. But I will tell you, I love the radio commercials that Bob Donovan is running. Um, it's unfortunate it doesn't have more money to run more ads like that. But you know, any ad, any ad that mentions Albert the Alley Cat, I, I'm set because that's that appeals to old school, old time Milwaukee. Before you know, anybody that did the weather on television had to have a meteorolo- meteorological degree, and and it's probably best that that they do now. But we, we had Albert the Alley Cat. And if you are a certain age, you remember it was it was a puppet who, who ended up Ward Allen was the weather guy and Albert the Alley Cat was the puppet. Actually, one of my childhood, um, an acquaintance of mine, it was her dad that was the, the voice of Albert the Alley Cat. So I o- always remember that. And Bob Donovan brings back those memories when he's talking about that. And he's talking about a different time in Milwaukee when you didn't have almost 200 homicides and 24 cars being stolen a day and and how you know we need to to get back to that in some way shape or form all right let us switch gears over the last month or so we we spent a lot of time talking about what is going on in ukraine and i am sure if you are a follower of current events you know every time you turn on the radio or the television or, or go access the internet you see the latest horror stories about what is happening in ukraine let's review the bidding for a moment um vladimir putin who is an evil despot I think made a huge miscalculation. He thought the Russian military was going to storm into Ukraine, a country of 40 million people, that in some respects they would be greeted as liberators and that they'd be able to take Kiev, for example, the the main, the capital city. They'd be able to take it in two or three days. Well, that, that has not happened. The Russian military has been held. They've been pretty much stalemated. And I, I think any military assessment that's out there is that this has not gone as they planned. 
And as a result of that, since they're not able, this is the Russians, to accomplish what they hope to accomplish militarily, what they're starting to do is they're starting to use tactics that Hitler employed in the various blitzes back at 38, 39, and 1940, where now the Russians, they're just indiscriminately bombing cities in an attempt to try to terrorize the, the population. And they're hitting targets where they know that there's women and children. They're hitting hospitals. They don't care, which to me makes Vladimir Putin a war criminal. I think it's it's very, very simple. But if you look at this, the war is clearly not going as they anticipated. That doesn't change the fact, though, that there's a huge humanitarian cost. I mean, Again, the, the estimates are it's a, it's a country of 40 million. The estimates are about 10 million have already been displaced. I mean, this is, this is as great a refugee crisis. I think you really do have to probably go back to World War II to see a refugee crisis like this. And Vladimir Putin appears willing to level U- Ukraine. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much it. So the military is stalled. He's not able to accomplish his military objectives. So now it's like, let's just try to bomb, whether it's bombs launched from airplanes or bombs launched from uh, various land sites in Russia or bombs lost for, launched from ships. It's just let's try to terrorize and bomb the population into senselessness, and, and then maybe we can accomplish it, which tells me he's willing to destroy the entire country. And then you, you wonder, okay, wh- what do you have? So there are ongoing negotiations. Putin's demands are essentially surrender. You know, you surrender. I want to promise that you're never you're going to stop this this westward leaning. That you're going to give us huge chunks of land and et cetera, et cetera. These at this point in time are are non-starters. But beyond that, the damage, whether it's the loss of lives or the billions of dollars in damages, he, he's leveled cities for goodness sakes. So the question becomes. From the perspective of the rest of the world, what what should the end of this look like? Now, let me explain. By that, I mean, should we simply say, if Vladimir Putin were to go in tomorrow and say, okay, here, here's the deal, we're, we're going to stop bombing you, but what we want is we want you to promise that you're never going to join NATO. We want you to promise that we can have the Crimea, that we can have other huge chunks of, of the country, and, and we want a commitment that you're going to demilitarize, and, and then we'll stop bombing you. Right. Should that be enough? I mean, look at what this monster has done. Thousands and thousands of civilian lives lost. Billions of dollars. Cities that are absolutely leveled. And as I was saying a minute ago, a huge humanitarian crisis. So there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal, which I found to be very thought-provoking, and I wanted to discuss it with you and get your reaction. Today, the story, it says, Russian withdrawal isn't enough. Biden should tell NATO, and he's having, he's going to be in Poland later on this week, I believe. Biden should tell NATO that sanctions will continue until Putin leaves power. And it, it, it harkens back to January of 1943 when President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill met in, in Casablanca. And, and then the, the, they decided right there that to end World War II, there was only one term that was acceptable, and that was unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender, and and they maintain that. So this article suggests maybe moving forward, instead of just saying, all right, stop blowing up Ukraine and all will be forgiven, what NATO, 
should do is something different. They said, look, Vladimir Putin poses a danger to the world. Right now, we have all these sanctions that are in place. And as a condition of removing the sanctions, what needs to happen is Vladimir Putin leaves, needs to leave power. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, uh, President Biden refers to Putin as a war criminal. Um, Ukraine talks about these atrocities that are being committed. All right, if Vladimir Putin just says, okay, we're going to stop bombing, is that enough? Or should there be long-term consequences? 855-616-1620. Should we say, we being the United States, go to NATO and say, look, it's not enough just to have Putin say he's sorry and to stop this because if there's not consequences for what happened, he will do this again. He'll go after Poland. He'll go after Finland. He'll go after the Baltic states, some of the other Baltic states. The, the condition of this needs to be that Putin, Putin's got to go, and in law, as long as he is in power, we are going to continue the sanctions that we have put in place. 855-616-1620. What do you think about that? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. I think that uh, NATO should ask for Putin to be gone and all his cronies, not just Putin. And uh, they should all get put in prison for the rest of their lives, which would actually be too good for them. Okay, well, well, let's work through this. Right, well, okay, let's work through this. Let's say NATO says as long as Putin is still in control, we're we're not going to lift the sanctions. Doesn't that then just inspire Putin to continue to try to level Ukraine? I mean, is that is that in the interest of what's going on in, in Ukraine? I think Ukraine's uh, hell-bent on staying out of this uh, uh, and opposing Russia to the end. They they are adamant about standing up, and we should stand up with them. Yeah, thanks for calling, Mike. I appreciate it. 855-616-1620. I mean, because here, the, here is the, the very real issue that is presented. It, it, it's... If, if you simply say, okay, we're going to allow Vladimir Putin to, to get a, we're, we're to have a ceasefire, and so we're, we're going to stop killing civilians, and, and all that is, of course, incredibly desirable, but do there, does there need to be consequences for the, this sort of war of aggression? Look at what, look at what it is that, that he has done. And if there are no consequences for Russia, doesn't that just say, all right, Everybody's united now with the sanctions, but I tell you what, six months from now, we're going to, we're going to invade Poland or we'll, we'll pick a non-NATO state or something and we'll, we'll just do it again because even though we got into Ukraine and we weren't able to win a military victory, we were able to just sort of win the peace because everybody wanted us to stop. Well, all right. As long as Vladimir Putin is in power, is there anything to convince anybody that he's, he's going to stop and that there won't be another Ukraine in the next year or two. Let's talk to Josh on the South Side. Josh, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Uh, this is ridiculous. I, what's the point of NATO? You got, you got to turn down your Josh. You got to turn down your radio. Kind of for, you got to turn down your radio. You got to turn down your radio because you'll hear yourself seven seconds later. I can. I hear it fine, but fine. Um, okay. I. It's it's ridiculous because. <clears throat> What's the point of NATO if you're not going to arm all those countries and have a defense? Ukraine wasn't in NATO. <clears throat> Plus, it's just going to escalate the situation and make it worse. By escalate, you mean by telling, them out of power. 
Well, well, if you don't, if there aren't a, if there aren't consequences, though, do you think he's going to stop? If he's, if the only consequence is here, stop bombing us, and we'll we'll give up our claim to the Crimea. We'll allow these port parts of our country to become Russian states. We'll promise that we're not going to ever join NATO. If there's no consequences to this, do you think Putin stops? Well, he has Crimea already. Yeah. He has Crimea already. And now well, that, that hasn't been sanctions, India, India and China aren't, aren't going along with the sanctions. They're two largest countries in the world. It's just a but, mess. But the rest I don't of think the West make is. it worse. The West is. Oh, so, so, if, so what you're saying is do nothing. As soon as Putin decides... No, not okay, do nothing, but it's, it's a tough situation, and you have well, to what would keep negotiating and get to a point. He's also 70 years old. He's not going to be around that much longer. Well, thanks to call, Josh. I, I don't know. That's that's that, that that's a, that's a and look. And I, I appreciate thanks to call, Josh. I, I appreciate that. That's a it, it is a difficult and it's a sensitive situation. But I guess that's the question. If you have if you have an opportunity now to try to prevent this from happening again, we we talk about consequences all the time. You know, in the first segment of the program, we were talking about crime and the fact that there's no consequences. You can steal cars and you can go out and you can carry guns, felons over and over again, and and you get no consequences. I guess that's where where we have where we're looking here. And I understand in some respects there's there's a, a conflict between what Ukraine might want and, and what the rest of the world, or at least the free world, might want, which is, I mean, Ukraine wants to keep their independence, and Ukraine, you know, wants to, to have their civilians stop being slaughtered by, by the, the monster that is Vladimir Putin and, and the Russian army. And so that's their goal. But from the perspective of the bigger picture in the world, if there aren't consequences to what Putin's done now, does that just embolden him in the future? Does he get to go have his big rallies and see, see, this is what happened. We we invaded, and, and even though we weren't able to accomplish our, our goals militarily, and even though we were being shut down, we were still able to terrorize citizenry enough that we can get away with this. And I guess if you're counting on, gee, Putin's in his 70s and, he, and he's going to die, well, he can cause a lot of havoc before that happens. Sam and McHenry. Sam, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon good afternoon jeff thanks for having me on sure what do you think well this is a bigger it's a bigger problem than i think the newspaper is revealing first of all if you could get him to stop right now how are you going to get people to move back there and resettle i mean the place is just completely uninhabitable and then you'd have to have assurances going forward that he would like you pointed out he would never do this again and and okay so you get putin out then you got the the old adage: meet the new boss, same as the, same old, as the boss. old boss. Yeah. So now we would have to see a. So now we would have to see a major change in the Russian government. Are they willing to do that? We don't know. And then you have to look at how the whole thing with Hitler ended. You know, when he went down in the end, that government was turned over to people that were friendly to the rest of Europe. I don't see that here with Russia. I think it would just go like you described. He's going to take a two-year vacation, and whether he comes back or somebody else comes back that's like-minded, it's just going to start up all over again. Yeah. yeah well, that, that, no, thanks for calling. I, I don't disagree, and that, that's why this is this is such an ongoing mess that is out there. 
Um, here's a Dick in Grafton sends an interesting text. Jeff, current NATO, U.S., and free world goal should be for Russians to completely u- leave Ukraine, including Crimea and western Ukrainian provinces. Next priority is Russian reparations for trying to pulverize Ukraine. Yeah, that's, I mean, we haven't even talked about, you know, reparations, but should there, you, you invade a country, you displace, well, like I said, out of 40 million, 10 million are now refugees, and Sam is absolutely correct. You know, you have some some cities that have just pretty much been leveled. Jeff, if we can get regime change, I think it would be nice, but I think that there are more important goals. Um, Putin can try something in any of the NATO countries, but he'll be immediately blasted back into the Middle Ages, and, that, and that's what should happen. But, I mean, what is the end game? And I keep asking this question. If, if it's just, okay, you're losing militarily, but what you're doing is you're just killing so many civilians and destroying so many people that, that we're going to allow that kind of reign of terror to succeed. And I've been telling this story before. I'm, I'm currently in reading a whole series of books, both, you know, historical fiction and nonfiction about, you know, that World War II period from like 1938 to 1942. And it, it's very, very interesting. And I, I, I'm fascinated by it because it's very timely because I think it, it, it says, it raises questions now of, that are very timely now as we ask the question about, you know, what happens and, and should there be consequences? And, you know, Hitler thought that he could terrorize the United Kingdom. He thought he could terrorize Britain into conceding by not winning militarily. He was losing militarily when he tried to. But so the idea was, OK, we can't invade Britain. So what we're going to do is we're going to send missiles. We're just going to try to kill as many civilians as we possibly can in effort to try to negotiate. They'll surrender to make us go away. Well, I, they, they didn't. And they ended up fighting Hitler. Now, I'm not encouraging a World War Three. And I think the U.S.'s response thus far has been appropriate. But now that you've got these sanctions in place, maybe you should keep these sanctions in place until Putin makes reparations. And if he doesn't, fine, just try to choke off Russia financially. Will that push Russia towards China? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. It's also entirely possible that it might push China towards the rest of the free world because China decides, hey, we don't necessarily want to be on the side of, of North Korea and the murderous Russians. Not an easy choice. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. I understand people are treading lightly with this because, you know, Russia has nuclear capabilities. But doesn't there need to be consequences for invading a neighboring country, involving yourself in the country to the point that you cause about 25 percent of the population to become homeless and refugees, destroying huge pieces of infrastructure, leveling cities, even if you were willing to say, okay, well, we'll do a ceasefire now, shouldn't there be more consequences? One of our listeners says, reparations? See what happened after the Treaty of Versailles. Not a good idea. Well, that was because the reparations were punitive. I just don't think that you can allow a country like Russia to do what it's done and get off scot-free. But that's just me. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. It must be an interesting time in the Kremlin. You know, we, we were talking about what, you know, what the end game is, but there, there, there can be no question that this, this war in Ukraine did not go as, as Russia 
in general and as Vladimir Putin in particular thought it was going to do. He thought it was going to be a walkover, um, and it hasn't been. You know, we're, we're now a month into this, and it's very clear that Ukraine is not going to surrender. Now, by sheer military might and sending in cruise missiles and things of the like, you can, I guess, pummel a uh, uh, you you can pummel a country into the stone age i guess but that that doesn't mean then what happens and then you occupy the country and what you have is years of guerrilla warfare and things like that so i mean that that's what you're looking at best case scenario from the russian perspective meanwhile you have become an international pariah and i think the other miscalculation one of many that putin made was he didn't think the west would be able to to hold together you know you, you have he didn't think that you know you would have the world outside you know china and india but china's i think more on the fence than, than people might give him credit for he, he didn't think that they would that you could get the the west to agree on sanctions and and you have and now you have sweden and switzerland and places like that that are going along with the sanctions and that's clearly hurting the russian people there, there's no question about it and so you know your credit cards are no good you the stock market's been closed you your money is at least on the international stage is essentially worthless now all the the western companies that you've come to rely on and love are, are now pulling out and, and that's that's not going to just be a switch that's flipped on and it comes back again so i mean i, I don't think putin anticipated all this so into that this is a, a piece that i just saw it's it's in the the sun and the sun is well it's kind of it's like one step above where the National Enquirer used to be, but it's still kind of interesting. So here, here's the story. Poison plot. Russian top brass plan to poison Vladimir Putin and have his chosen successor and have chosen his successor according to Ukrainian intelligence. Ukrainian intelligence has claimed that members of the Russian elite are planning to poison um, Vladimir Putin. Insiders are plotting to oust him. The goal of the Russian elite is supposedly to remove the president from power as soon as possible before restoring economic ties with the West. And then apparently they've allegedly found somebody that they, they want to put in there who was somebody very close to Putin who's fallen out with him allegedly because of what's what's happened and how poorly the war is going. Powerful insiders are allegedly dismayed at the ramifications of the war and the sanctions imposed on the Russian economy. So, in particular, poisoning, sudden disease, or any other coincidence is not excluded. Now, again, I I don't know. I don't know about that and whether it's likely to, to happen or not, but I do know that I, I'm sure if I'm Putin and this is not developing like I, I planned and you have a lot of your supporters that are starting to become nervous and nobody's seeing the end game from your perspective, you know, how, how does Russia get out of this given the fact that Ukraine doesn't appear ready to surrender at all? These things, again, become a little bit more plausible. Whether a new boss is different than the old boss, as one of our callers in the last hour asked, is a fair question. Okay, let's switch gears. When you were in school, and when I was in school, there were there was a recognition for for doing well. You, you had you had an honor roll, right? You know, and if you got a certain grade point average, you, you made the honor roll. Maybe at the school you were at, there was a high honor roll. And then, you know, there, there were there was a class rank. 
And I, I don't know, but you know, I think at least where I went to school, you always aspired to be in the top 10% or the top 5% or whatever, right? It was just, it was, it was a goal if you were academically motivated that you, you sought to try to achieve. And lots of students who, let's say, did have an aptitude, I admit they probably got into a competition. People wanted to be the valedictorian. People wanted to be number one in, in their class. Just like if you're playing basketball, for example, in high school, you know, you, you want to be the best player on your basketball team. You want to be the one that's scoring the most points. You want to be the one that scored the most touchdowns on the football team. And in athletics, we, we recognize that. We reward that. Oh, this is the guy that scored the most points in the ba- for the basketball team this year and all those sorts of things. You recognize it in sports and you recognize it in academics, which brings me to the story from Colorado. Now, this is from Colorado, but it is not atypical of things that have been going on around here. Many Colorado high schools are doing away with the concept of valedictorian. Um, Starting with the class of 2026, the Cherry Creek School District in western Arapahoe County, Colorado, will not give special recognition to students who have earned the highest grade point average in their class at graduations. The faculty, the faculty have found recognizing the person who's number one in their class is no longer appropriate for their students. The practices of class rank and valedictorian status are outdated and inconsistent with what we know and believe of our students. We believe all students can learn at high levels and that learning should not be a competition. Learning should not be a competition. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What, what about that? I mean, should we now say to the kids who really, really bust their tails and finish, for example, number one in their high school class, we're not going to recognize that. We're not going to have valedictorians because, well, yes, you, you've achieved well, but really, have you accomplished anything more than the kid who graduated in the middle of his class? Because learning should not be a competition. Oh, by the way, they're, they're still... When you talk about athletics, you know, they're still going to recognize the kid that scores the most points on the basketball team because that's, I guess, a competition, athletics, but learning isn't. 855-616-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And in saying this, I I was not the valedictorian of my high school class, uh, but I kind of wish I was. And I don't think that there's anything we gain by not allowing and encouraging people and recognizing academic academic achievement. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, doing away with class ranks, doing away with the valedictorian or the salutorian, because, well, it's inconsistent with where we are in 2020, 2022. I'm sorry, I don't buy that at all. I think you still want to reward excellence. And I think it inspires some people who like that academic competition. And you know what? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, I, 
I don't think there's anything wrong, for example, with with honoring high school athletic achievement. This is the guy that scored the most points or the girl that scored the most points on, on the basketball team this year. Here, you, you get the special award. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But just like there's nothing wrong with that in the world of sports, I don't think there's anything wrong with recognizing, hey, you, you are the valedictorian. You're the kid that has the highest grade point average, you know, of all the other kids. Here, you, you won. I mean, the alternative is let's just kind of give out participation trophies. Don't don't we want to encourage that? And and I don't know about you, but when I was in school, one of the things that motivated me is that I I wanted to I, I was in competition in some respect with with some of my peers, a good natured competition. But yeah, I mean, if if you have one of your classmates that's getting ninety fives on tests and you're getting eighty on tests, yeah, one of the mode. I guess there's some people who just say, well, I got an eighty on a test, that's okay, I'm fine. But for a lot of us, it was, you know, gee, we I want to do as well as so and so is doing, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Why do we suddenly have to recognize mediocrity? but not recognize excellence. Barb in Pewaukee. Barb, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. My son went to Arrowhead High School, which, as you know, is a very large school. Right. Um, 750 students. There were 14 students in his graduating class with a 4.0. So that would have been 14 valedictorians. Mm-hmm. Um, my son had a 3.86, something like that, um, GPA, and because he was in less that not in the upper thirty percent of his class, it cost him a scholarship to Mizzou. Um, whereas he ended up going to Kent State and was accepted into their honors program, but it was just because of his class rank that caused him to lose his scholarship to Mizzou. So, with a three point eight GPO GPA, you didn't make the top third at Arrowhead. He did not. Wow. Wow. I mean, I did that. There are that many students. I, I totally agree with you. It, it blows you away, um, but he was not in the top third of his class with a 3.8. Wow, that's just that—that that tells me that there's some great inflation <laughs> that's going on, or something. At least. <laughs> I can't, I can't deny that, or you right. know, I there, there very well could be, um, you know, but class ranking. While I understand it's important to recognize those students who are on the honor roll and who have 4.0s, 14 valedictorians is not very feasible. And to not be in the top 30% of your class with a 3.8 grade point average is very odd. No, it it is odd. Yeah, so the class rank really basically, you know, lost him that scholarship. He ended up doing great at a different school and was in the honors program there, and it all worked out for the best. Um, but it did it did cause some some issues having oh, a class no, but, rank, and yeah. you know I, I agree you you need to encourage those kids and reward those kids who are doing well. Um, I don't agree with was it Colorado you said yeah um, that they were doing away with it. I don't agree with their reasoning, but I agree with getting rid of class ranks. Good enough. Thanks for the call. I appreciate the perspective. And again, I it it sounds that just sounds weird. To, but it, at the same time, 
as, as long as you're going to have GPAs, you're, you're going to know what what class ranks are. I mean, that, that's you're going to have GPA averages. And I guess it just it continues to be mind boggling to me that you could be outside the top third with a three point eight. Uh, on, if the scale is actually like like four a four point oh, it just that that's I'm, I'm sure that was the case. It just seems mind boggling to me. But still, unless you're going to see, that's the other thing that's I think so silly about it because unless you are are going to do away with letter grades and unless you're going to do away with GPAs, people people are going to know at some point in time. Now, in your particular case, you know the twelve that went through whole, all the college that you know all twelve of them went through and probably had straight A's. At the same time, I, I think that should be rewarded. I guess I don't have a problem with saying, hey, we had twelve people. That went through and had 4.0 GPAs. That that is in fact something to be celebrated. Now maybe you have to figure out how you break the tie between those 12. But I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging those 12 with their GPAs. Phil in Janesville. Phil, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah. Good Phil. afternoon, Jeff. Uh, Hi, Phil. I have six children. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I, have, I have six children. Uh, two of them were valedictorians, two were salutatorians. Uh, all four of those kids finished college with no student debt. Uh, very proud of the job they did. Uh, all four of them were also varsity athletes. And uh, they won some and they lost some there. Um, I never stood at the side of a tennis court and said, I want my daughter to get the award because she plays third today. Uh, I think that it's a, it's just another example of dumbing down our society and accepting mediocrity. Uh, I was the not the smartest kid in my class, and my sister was in hers, and I chased her all through school. And I, I think it's a great motivation. Uh, I have one one of the daughters who is varsity track and field. She'll graduate in May in three years. Uh, she was a two sport athlete and. Uh, and had one A minus. Otherwise, uh, I just I, I just think it's utterly ridiculous the way we suppress success in a culture that has been defined by the success of our. Anyway, and yeah, I have no, a great education, yeah. and I feel responsible for making them do their homework first before they went outside to play. And uh, I have a hard time buying that 3.86 didn't get you top third, but I'm sure there are a lot of, <laughs> that would be great inflation for sure. Yeah, thanks. Anyway, for I pre- my- no, I, no, I appreciate it. And I, I guess I'm, I'm with you on that. We don't, we, we don't say in the world of athletics, and I know I keep coming back to that, we don't say, okay, everybody's going to get the participation trophy, and we're not going to recognize the, the, the best player. No, you, you, you do that. You objectively have these measures. Now, there's a lot of kids that can't excel at athletics, but they have other things. So if you have some high school child that, that just butt, busts their butts, or a handful of them that bust their butt over the course of four years, giving up all sorts of things, foregoing other sorts of stuff because they want to be straight A students and they're working really hard and obviously they're probably gifted at that as well. Why, why shouldn't we recognize that? Why do we have to pretend that, that they did not accomplish that? Here's a text, Jeff. I'm a retired teacher. Competition is one of the strongest motivators most people have, including 
students. I, I love the story that, that Phil told about how he kind of he, he chased his sister through 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 school. You know, he, he wanted to do as well as his sister did. That's the competition that motivates people. It's the competition that motivates you in in the real world. It's the competition that motivates you in athletics. And it should also be the competition that I think motivates people in academics. And for the people who succeed, why not reward it? If you go into the real world and you you're in you're in sales, are we not? I think probably most companies recognize the top salesperson every year. This is the person that sold two million dollars of widgets or or whatever. Okay, because that success is something that people are motivated by, and so all the other salespeople, hopefully they oh that that's great that you know Frank you know did so very well, but I want to be that next year, so I'm motivated because I want to be the guy that sells the two million dollars worth of widgets. This is Jeff Wagner back with more in just a minute. And actually, that's me. Glad to have you with us. All right, here. I just before we move on, there, there was a story, and I mentioned it briefly um, on Friday's show, and it, it's still been just bothering me all weekend. Now, on this program, mini version of the Department of Justice, we talk a lot about the crime rates and things like that. And, and let's understand one of the epic fails of our criminal justice system right now has to do with juveniles. If you look at that that enormous number of, of crimes that are being committed by juveniles, car thefts, the estimate is that about half of the cars that are stolen, and it could be a little more, could be a little less, but the estimate is about half of the cars that are stolen in Milwaukee are stolen by people 16 and under. And it, it's, it's hardcore repeat offenders. Part of the problem with our juvenile justice system is that we, we have this, this antiquated view, and I've said this before, we, we think about this as, as, as Mayberry, and, you know, it, it's Opie, and gee, you know, Opie threw a rock at a, at a window, and we don't want to destroy Opie's life and things like that. Well, this is not Mayberry, and the type of criminals that we are dealing with are, are not Opie. They're, they're hardcore people who are out there with no regard at all for the property or the lives of other people and they're engaging in incredibly antisocial acts of antisocial behavior and they just and they just don't care and and yet over and over again we just turn them loose to continue stealing cars and ultimately what happens is one of the cars they steal and they run from the cops and they blow through a red light and they hit and they kill somebody and and then we got oh we've got a 15 year old we got to deal with here when if they had dealt with the 15 year old earlier maybe it wouldn't have been this bad but sooner or later these and i'm saying kids but what they are is in many cases hardcore criminals that they need to be dealt with so there was a story in the journal sentinel late last week the average cost to house a juvenile at one of the state juvenile facilities is four hundred twenty thousand dollars a piece for a year Four hundred twenty thousand dollars. So the, the the people who don't believe in consequences, this fuels their argument. They say, "Well, this is it. It's crazy. You know, four hundred twenty thousand dollars. There's that we we can't send people off to these these prisons. That's not the right question. My, my question, and this is what lawmakers should be examining, is how in God's green earth can it cost four hundred twenty thousand dollars a year to house a juvenile? offender four hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year my god you'd be you'd be better off buying the 
multiple car theft, buying the criminal, you'd be better off buying that criminal a, a car and giving him $100,000 and just saying the deal is you got to drive out of state. Now, I just say that tongue in cheek, but $420,000 is absolutely crazy. The question to me, it's not, gee, should we be putting more of these dangerous juvenile criminals into some form of custody? The answer is, of course we should. That That's the no-brainer. The question becomes, though, why? How does it cost four hundred and twenty grand? What could we possibly be doing that's costing four hundred and twenty thousand dollars? And why aren't we seriously examining how to do this more cheaply? Maybe it's things like I've been talking about for thirty years, like juvenile boot camps and, and things like that. But four hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. Let, let me see a show of hands. That's my guess is that there's there's not too many people, that, and that's and that's that's tax-free. I mean, think of what, you know, in, in the real world, think of what you'd have to pull in, you know, before you're making $420,000 a year. So the, the, the upshot of this story, and I've been thinking about it all weekend, is not, gee, th- does that mean we shouldn't incarcerate young people? Of course you got to incarcerate young people because you got to protect the rest of us from these dangerous young people that are out there committing crimes. The big question should be, and maybe this is something that the people who are running for governor should explore, is h- how can we do this in a much cheaper fashion? 420 thousand dollars a year i mean really number of people are saying how about we charge the parents the money um yeah jeff amen the decimal point should be removed i could see forty two thousand but four hundred and twenty thousand it's completely insane yes that that would you would think that that would be the case now i understand you got to hire prison guards and you got to provide food and things like that i mean i i i I understand that i I get it so there's going to be some sort of cost but four hundred twenty thousand dollars that's just flat out totally bozo nuts and and there's got to be a way to do that in a much much cheaper fashion and by the way if you figure out a way to do it in a much cheaper fashion that then I don't know, gives you the flexibility to send more and more of these dangerous young people out of the community um, so you can protect the rest of us. Eight, four hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Eric and Racine. Eric, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. I just did the math on that. It's one thousand one hundred and fifty dollars per day. Yes. Yes. For 365 days a year. Yes. (laughs) That's stupid. <laughs> it is actually, I don't mean to correct you, but it's actually $1,154 a day. Yeah, right. Oh, right. oh okay. You, you know, right. Trust me, you could, we could send them at, at that, at that price, we could find the most expensive hotel in my favorite place, Key West, Florida, and, and we could put them in the most expensive hotel and there'd still be a lot of money left to go out and have a couple nice meals. Can, can you imagine? How, how can it be $1,154? Right. I don't even live on $1,154 a day. No, you probably don't. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for the call, Eric. Most people probably don't live on eleven hundred fifty-four dollars a week, for goodness sake. Oh, and, and this uh, to add to add insult to injury to this. If you want to know, apparently the cost is going to go up on July first. They estimate it's going to go from eleven hundred fifty-four dollars a day to eleven hundred seventy-eight dollars a day. So it's going up four hundred twenty thousand dollars. Somebody somewhere needs to be contacting their legislator and saying what is going 
going on here? We understand that there's a cost for prisons, and yes, we understand that you got to hire guards and all those type of things. I appreciate it, but $420,000 a day, yeah, that's the way to look at it. It's like a 1000 bucks a day. Think of all the stuff that you could do for a $1,000 a day, and then maybe you understand how just crazy the situation is. Okay, back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A number of people want to offer theories as to how it can possibly cost $420,000 to house a juvenile. And I, I'm sorry, I just, I, I, my head explodes. I, it's just, there's, there, there's no way it should cost that much money, period. Otherwise, like I say, you'd seriously be better off like given taking some juvenile delinquent that's you know incar- going to be incarcerated for three years and giving him a hundred thousand bucks and a new car and just making him promise to leave the state you know I, and I say that tongue in cheek that that's I'm not really or saying that but four hundred and twenty thousand dollars over a thousand dollars a day that's just absolutely crazy and, and there needs to be really tough looks as to why it costs anywhere near that much money and maybe you need to do things like i'm talking about which are boot camps and stuff like that somebody texted in and said how much does it cost to train a soldier and you know boot camp they, they say just to get through boot camp they say it's about for a soldier including salary and stuff that's about 200,000 but that that that's a soldier it's 420,000 they say to incarcerate some kid that i don't know stolen 25 cars or took a gun and put it at the head of some elderly woman and stole her car and then led the police on a 100 mile chase a 100 mile an hour chase and we're paying $420,000 to incarcerate that person i don't think so at least it shouldn't be. All right, this doesn't bother me, but maybe it, it bothers you. It's the latest law enforcement technique, and it, it's being criticized in some in some circles. You, it, it is not uncommon. For example, in Milwaukee, when we talk about crime cases, a lot of times one of the phrases that you always see in the TV accounts or the radio accounts or the newspaper accounts is, you know, police are seeking suspects. Because a lot of times it, it's, it is reactive. By that I mean that the crime is committed, the shots are fired, the person is shot, whatever, and then, then the calls come in and the police respond. They are reacting to the crime. They, they get there after the fact. And as we talked about in the first hour of the program, a lot of times you have people, it, it's tough to figure out who was there. And a lot of times people don't want to cooperate for whatever reasons. So here's one of the things that police have been doing. They've been doing this thing called, they've been getting search warrants for what they call a geofence, geofence search warrant. Now, now follow me on this. Here's how it works. Most of us have cell phones, okay? And most of us, it's not exclusive, but most of us, our cell phones, you know, we have like Google accounts and things like that. And I got a little secret here, if you didn't know it. I mean, Google Google tracks you. You know, Google can tell where your cell phone is. Now, there's a way that you can deactivate this, but most people don't. So, you know, you can, you know, Google knows where you are. They've got these records of this. So here's what law enforcement has been doing. Um, let's say there is a shooting incident in in, a, in an area. Okay, there, there's a shooting on, you know, 
I don't know, 5th and Wagner. That's where the, the shooting is. And so you, you get there, and people have scattered, and you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, who might have been responsible for this? Well, what law enforcement could do is they can go and get a search warrant, and they go to Google with this warrant, and the warrant orders Google to list all cell phones that their data shows were active in the area around the crime scene. So you can go to Google and you can say, okay, here's here's the deal. Um, f- between 3.30 and 4.30 on Friday afternoon, you know, we want to know all the cell phones that were active um, in, this, in this range. And, and you set the geographic range. And Google can tell you that. So then what happens is law enforcement gets a list of the different cell phones that were in that area you know, at the time that you're asking for. And then what they end up doing is they go, they, they can then go and you can figure out who the, the cell phones are, who they belong to, you know, and that's what they do. And so you're able to figure out who was on the scene by tracking this cell phone data, if, if you follow how this works. And so like a lot of times the police will go through there and they'll say, okay, well, you know, we, th- this is, this is a neighbor. Okay. So this is the house next door and they had three cell phones that were active. Boom. We, we crossed them off because they know they weren't involved in the shooting. But in any event, by the process of elimination, and I know it sounds complicated, but by the process of the elimination, they can oftentimes identify who the suspects are. Or alternatively, if they've identified the suspect, well, then they have more evidence to prosecute the bad guy because he might say, I I wasn't. I I was nowhere near this place at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon. And then, you know, the cops have this record. Well, okay, this is your cell phone, or at least this is the number associated with your cell phone. And, yes, it it was at this location at the time. And so this has been a a technique. Just, um, let's see, uh, in Virginia, okay, nationwide, the use of these geofence search warrants has expanded about 1,200%, 1, 1, 1,200%, 1,200% nationwide, and it's helping police crack bank robberies, find suspects in killings. This was one of the techniques that they used, by the way, to identify people who were involved in storming the Capitol on January 6th because that, that's exactly what they did. They did the geofence thing to find, they're trying to identify. They got a picture of somebody, they don't know who it is that, that's in the Capitol. Well, okay, one of the investigative techniques they use is this geofencing, and they find out that, okay, these, these are the cell phones that were surrounding the Capitol at that time on that date. And then, again, it helps them go back and try to put things together. It's not a be-all, end-all, but it is an investigative technique. Well, as you might expect, now that this has started to occur, lots of people are very, very uncomfortable with this. Well, you know, I mean, this is this violates my privacy. You know, the government's going to be able or the state's going to be able to go back and look and, and, and get this warrant that, that tracks. I might, I'm innocent. I was doing nothing. I was just like driving by. I had no idea the shopping mall was being held up. I was just driving by, and yet my cell phone data is going to come up as part of this. 855-616-1620. As some Somebody who has nothing to hide, 
I want them to catch the bad guys. And if this helps catch bank robbers, murderers, if this helps catch people who are committing crimes and my cell phone number happens to turn up, I've got no problem at it with it at all. 855-616-1620. Do you? We discuss in just a moment. See, I guess I don't see this any different as if I'm if I'm at a shopping mall and there's a, a shooting at, at the shopping mall and there's security cameras all over. The police are going to get the security cameras. And, and, yeah, I'm going to show up along with 100 or 500 or 1,000 other people at the shopping mall. And, and nobody thinks that I'm involved in the shooting. Yet, yes, my face is going to be on there. And th- this to me is no different than that. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. Uh, it reminds me of a little of the extra security we have to go through at the airport after 9-11. You know, if you have nothing to hide, you're not going to mind a little inconvenience if it helps for the safety and benefit of everybody. Yeah, Mike, hey, thanks for the call. Yeah, I, I get, right. I mean, to me, it's it's kind of like the TSA stuff. And, and see, the argument is, well, this that this is, you know, innocent people's numbers are going to show up on this. Well, okay, yeah, I, I understand. I don't have a problem with with that i mean it's and what law enforcement does is they'll quickly go through this and you you, like that's the example i was giving there's a shooting on a on a street corner and okay well you know these four numbers are belong to the the people that live next door and these four numbers belong to the people live two doors down so we cross those off but oh yeah here this is a number that comes back to one of these suspected gang bangers who you know we we believe is responsible for this I, i guess I think this is another one of these tools. Is it a perfect tool? No, but it's another tool. And obviously the fact that law enforcement is starting to use these as much as they are, are telling you that it's got some validity and it was a key thing in identifying people who were, for fact, involved in storming the Capitol. So you get the phone numbers. Okay, the the phone numbers, this is for people that were in the Capitol. We put that geo area, that area in there, that geo fence, and now, now we're going to start using other identification things to figure out if people were there or not. If it helps get criminals off the street, I'm okay with it. No problem at all. And if that means that a capital security officer's phone is also going to get caught up in this, that's fine because everybody's going to know he had a legitimate reason to be there. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. Boy, um, NCAA tournament. I, there, there's a number of takeaways, and as we talked about on Friday, my Marquette Warriors just got absolutely waxed, and I don't know what it is. It seems like the last several years, they just fall apart completely at the end, and new coach, old coach, doesn't make much difference. It was just, it was just absolutely ugly. Wisconsin, of course, wins the first game, but then gets upset yesterday, and, and, and here, here's the bigger story. Okay, the Big Ten sends nine teams to the NCAA tournament, nine teams. Um, and out of nine teams, they're, they're down to, to two, Purdue and Michigan. And, of course, it just it kills me that Michigan is there. Michigan, of course, is the team that got into the brawl with the with the Wisconsin Badgers, and you end up in a situation where the, their coach was suspended for a few games for punching the Wisconsin assistant. And uh, I guess proving that there is not necessarily any justice in the world, Michigan is still around, and as is Purdue. But 
Wisconsin, of course, as we all know, lost yesterday. Number four seed Illinois lost. Number five seed Iowa lost. Number seven seed Ohio State lost. Number 10 seed Michigan State lost. Played a really good game against Duke, but they lost. Number 11 seed Rutgers lost. Number 12 seed Indiana lost as well. So that's seven out of nine teams um, losing. More interestingly is the Big Ten apparently has not won the NCAA tournament. They've not won a national championship in men's basketball since Michigan State in 2000. It's a 22 a 22-year drought, which again, I don't have the answers for it, but you know, year after year after year it becomes more than just a, an aberration and it's bad night yesterday for Wisconsin, but a bad in general, a bad start to the NCAA tournament. I actually think Purdue's got the potential to do some. Uh, I think Purdue's got the potential to do some real damage. But seven out of the nine teams gone. All right. I am curious as to how you feel about this. And and the story I'm going to tell you comes from New York, but it, it could come from here or anywhere. Now, on the one hand, we always say, see something, say something, right? And and that's something I think most of us would would agree with. If you see something that's suspicious, you you, want to turn that in. At the same time, is is there a difference between see something, say something, and essentially deputizing and rewarding people for becoming snitches? So, So here's the story. In New York City, they have an ordinance that says trucks are not allowed to idle more than three minutes. So apparently, you know, there would be a problem with, like, trucks double parking and things like that. So the, the rules are a truck cannot double park more than three minutes. If the truck does, it's liable. The, the owner of the truck, the company that's behind the truck or whatever, can be fined 350 bucks. Right, that that's kind of the that's sort of the deal, and it's possible. Like if if it's a repeat offender, you get fined more than that. But but it's three hundred and fifty bucks if you leave your truck idling for more than three minutes. And these these are trucks we're talking about, like delivery trucks, not passenger cars. If you idle more than a minute in front of a school zone, for example, you can be liable for three hundred and fifty dollars. All right, so that that's what the rule is. Well, here's the interesting aspect of the rule that I want to talk to you about. Citizens under the law are allowed to report this. They call it the Citizens Air Complaint Program. So citizens can report trucks that they see idling too long. Follow me? All right. Okay, Jeff, well, that's good. It's see something, say something. Well, here's where it gets interesting. Told you there was a $350 fine. The way the law is set up, every citizen that reports a truck that is idling for more than three minutes and submits evidence to to the city, and the evidence has to show the truck idling for more than three minutes, and it has to show who like the truck belongs to. But everybody that is able to submit evidence of a truck violating this particular ordinance is entitled to $87.50 out of the, the three fifty. So you you get you know essentially you get a quarter of it. 
You know, that, that's how it works. So what's happened is there's this cottage industry going around of all these people in New York who walk around with their, their cell phones looking to find trucks that are idling. And then what they do is, is they set up on the streets and they film them. And they film the truck idling, and they, the, you know, it, it has to be filmed in such a way that the, you know, it's proof that the city can use to send a to, to send a ticket to somebody. But if you, as the citizen, submit this, and they find the truck driver, or they find the company, you get eighty-seven dollars and fifty cents. Um, now, you might say. Well, you know, who's going to really do that? That sounds like a lot of work for, you know, 87 bucks. Well, here's the deal. I'm looking at a story in the New York Times. Last year, there was this one guy that they found who got $64,000 in rewards. And so, essentially, what, what he does, this is his, this is kind of his job. He's a retired guy. This is kind of his job. He walks around, walks up and down the streets, looking to find cars that are idling, and, or trucks that are idling, and he's got his, his video equipment on him, and he videos them. And if he catches them idling for three minutes and ten seconds, that's his standard, he, he sends it in. And he's, they're talking about how he, he's he kind of like set up, and they apparently the, the truckers don't like that when people are doing this, so they, they do it in kind of surreptitious ways, like they maybe make themselves look like tourists or whatever. They try to disguise the fact that they're actually filming this. But the idea is they film it, and then they get a cut out of it. And it's turned out to be very, very lucrative for this. Um, they say the, the program has vastly increased the number of complaints of idling trucks sent to the city. Um, more than 12,000 reports last year. But many, if not all of them, come from citizens. The city paid more than $724,000 in bounties last year alone and $1.1 million since 2019. For its share, the city collected $2.4 million in fines, up 24%. Okay, so they're essentially encouraging the citizens to go out, find people that are letting the trucks idle too long, and then turn them in, and they give them a cut. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this a good idea? Should more people be doing this? And, and should we essentially, I don't know, in, and, and why limit it to idling trucks? I mean, could you do it with with parking tickets, for, for example? You're walking down the, the street. You're walking down the street of Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, and you see that there's a car that's parked at a meter. The meter is expired. Should you, why do we wait for a parking checker? Would you think it would be a good idea if the citizens would take that picture and, and send it in? Okay, this is the, and you have to take the picture in a way that captures, again, the, the parking meter and the car and things like that. Should we be having more citizen reporting? And should citizens be able to, to get a claim of this? Think back to when, for example, in Milwaukee, they had the restrictions during COVID where, you know, people were supposed to be wearing their masks and when they weren't eating and drinking. And there was a nasty fine to the businesses. Remember that? Well, all right. Should we have encouraged citizens not 
not necessarily calling the health department seeing this, but going in with their cameras, filming, hey, there's those two people in the corner, they're not wearing their masks, and here we've filmed them for the last five minutes, I'm going to send that off to the city, and that should be the basis for finding people. Should we expand programs like this to essentially reward people for becoming snitches? 855-616-1620. It's working in New York, I mean, working to the extent that the city is making money because they're writing a lot more tickets for idling trucks than they used to, so they're getting more dough, and you've got some people like $750,000 last year alone. 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. Okay, so so just to kind of reset the scene, New York has this this rule that says trucks can't idle for more than three minutes, and it's a $350 fine if they do. So what's happened is, as part of the law, you've got citizens that are going around and making their own citizens' complaints. People are walking up and down the streets. They will film a truck idling for three minutes and ten seconds. They will send it in. The city will then use that video evidence that's been provided by the citizen to fine the truck driver, and the person that submits it gets 87 bucks. You might say, well, that's a lot of trouble for 87 bucks, but they, they but last year they paid out about three-quarters of a million dollars in fines. One guy that the New York Times is writing about, he made, as part of a side hustle, um, you know, he made $64,000 in rewards, and I believe it's all tax-free. I believe it's tax-free. So should we expand? The, is this a good idea? And should we do this for other things? Parking meters. Um, again, citizen enforcement of COVID rules. Hey, you're not supposed to be able to sit in a restaurant without um, a mask. Instead of calling the health department, you document it. Should you be rewarded? Is that a good thing? Dennis in Grafton. Dennis, you're first. Good afternoon. Yes, uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, If I saw a car parked at a meter that was expired, I'd put a quarter in the meter. Um, Yeah, well, that's, that's, I mean, that's, I think a a lot of people would end up doing that. But what 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 if the car is sitting at that meter and it's been there for a long time and nobody's ticketing at it and you're you're waiting because your friends are coming down and they want to take that parking space? Do you think you might ever be inclined to turn somebody in for that? Well, I th- in the city of Milwaukee, the, a car wouldn't be there too long without a ticket. They're pretty good. They're out there five or ten minutes after you're expired. They're, they're running around and getting you. I think it would be nice to uh, help somebody out, get, put a quarter in, and be done with it. Got it. Well, thanks for calling, Dennis. I appreciate it. I, get that. That's not, that's not, I guess that's not really the, the point. It's, it's more the, the, the point of my conversation here is, is, is this a good idea for citizens to essentially – what we do is they, you turn this into a side hustle. So you have people wandering around looking to document um, other people violating the law and then being compensated for it. I've got a number of texts on this. Jeff, there should be a swell place in you-know-where for this guy. Jeff, I drive a beer truck in the city. It takes more than three minutes to get the beer off the truck, checked in, and in most cases down a narrow set of stairs to the bar basement. Um, there would be no profit if we continue to get the tickets. Well, again, that's I, I'm not arguing about the wisdom of the, this three-minute rule, and I, I don't know why the trucks, I, I, you know, obviously it's a lot easier to keep the trucks running, especially since they're double parked, is my guess, in New York. So I'm not arguing about the wisdom of this rule. I'm just arguing about the way it's being enforced. You know, should we essentially be encouraging people to 
to snitch out other people. And I guess on the one hand, you can argue, well, well, it, it's wrong what they're doing. You know, they're, you're not supposed to idle for more than three minutes. We don't have enough cops to uh, enforce this, so let's reward the um, let's reward the people for doing this. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. OMG! When I was a county, when when the county, um, I was an operate nine one one years ago. They offered citizens fifty dollars for reporting drunk drivers who were subsequently convicted. Our phones rang nonstop every time someone was speeding or the tire touched the center line, it took us away from real emergency calls. Right now, see, that's why this isn't just call to report it. This is you've got to provide the evidence of this. So now you have all these people um, wandering the streets um, who are trying to film all this. Jeff, isn't this the broken windows theory gone wild? Well, well, maybe. I'm, I'm kind of wondering about the confrontations. I'm trying to picture the beer truck driver that comes out and finds the guy who's, like, uh, videoing him. You kind of wonder what that's going to be. Jeff, some kooky driver will probably shoot someone. Well, I, I think there's a potential. Jeff, I love how people are willing to be snitches when they can profit for, from it, but apparently it's not good enough to be a snitch to stop murderers, to stall murders or car thefts, and a lot of other violent matters that are going on. Yes, that is the irony of this. Jeff, I think it's a little close to 1930s Germany for my cut comfort, encouraging citizens to rat on one or another. Jeff, sounds like trouble to me. Sooner or later, they're going to videotape the wrong person. Um, yeah, I, there there is an element of that as well. Jeff, I think we have enough people videoing everything. You know, I kind of come down that way. I, I, I am a broken windows type of law enforcement guy, and I believe small things matter. But I, I do think as a policy matter, I think the idea of essentially deputizing citizens, because that's what this effectively does, to be the fact gatherer um, and encouraging them to do that for pay, I, I think it leads to a lot of problems. And I understand that you want to catch the trucks that are idling. And I don't have a problem with whistleblower rewards or things like that, but i got to tell you, I just I think this opens up cans of worms and inevitably what's going to happen sooner or later is you are going to have assaultive sort of behavior you're going to have the you know you're going to have the beer truck driver coming out and seeing the person that's videotaping um, and you know now that then it's going to be a a fight it's the question becomes you know this this isn't this isn't reporting crime and being a good citizen and, and volunteering stuff and cooperating, which is what I think we all have an obligation to do. This is essentially kind of deputizing yourself to be in law enforcement and going around actively looking for criminal behavior, or in this case, you know, ordinance violations that you can report. I think it opens up Pandora's box to problems, and I think big picture they're going to come to regret it as time goes on. But that's just me. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You know, it's really interesting. It's, it's because of this invasion, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a lot, a lot of people are taking a lot harder look at a lot of the stuff that Russia has been doing over the years, whether it was meddling in the U.S. election in 2016. Well, one of the things that's starting to come out now is it appears that worldwide, what Russia has been doing for years has been secretly financing various anti-fracking groups, 
you know, the, the so-called the, the heavy green groups that that want in a particular country they, they don't want they don't want fracking going on. You know, fracking being the process of where you blast sand in and you extract you know oil from shale. Um, and, and apparently, it's now turning out that Russia has been secretly funding some of these environmental groups who oppose fracking. Now, you might say, Jeff, why, why would Russia do that? Well, well, here's what happens. Keep in mind, Russia is, for all intents and purposes, it is a gas station. People need the fossil fuels that it is providing. So what Russia has been doing secretly is aligning itself with some of these green groups who in their own countries have been then protesting and discouraging fracking, keeping their own individual country away from more energy independence and indirectly then keeping them tied to Russia. It's amazing how sophisticated and clever a lot of this Russia, the, the Russia operations have been. And now they're all starting to come out, indicating what an evil empire Russia has been. Ronald Reagan was right. Barack Obama, who said that Russia was not a problem and that, you know, it hadn't been a problem since 1989. Obama was wrong, Reagan was right, and Biden's finding that out the hard way right now. I don't know if anybody else has been having this problem, but the Wall Street Journal is reporting that um, Apple is down. Several products, including the App Store, iTunes, Pod, and Podcasts, are suffering an outage. Um, more than 20 services went offline, according to the tech company's system sat status page. More than 20 services went offline Monday afternoon, including the App Store, Apple Music, Apple TV, the iTunes Store, and Podcasts, according to the company's system status page, which said the outcast, the outages began about 11.30 our time. Apple Mac Apps also showed an outage. Apple said the problems range from slow or unavailable service to intermittent issues with various services. Um, they're still working on this. Down Detector, a site that tracks Internet outages, showed thousands of outage reports across the various Apple properties. Apple is not saying anything yet. So um, if you're... If you are trying to take advantage of Apple Store stuff or Apple TV or Apple Music or iTunes and it's not responding, you are not alone. But it does, what I find to be really interesting about this is it just shows, again, how how our consumer tastes have, have changed. I mean, the, you know, whether it's how we consume music. Okay, well, you know, you, it's Apple Music. Or it's the iTunes store. Or, you know, I, I want I want to listen to my regular podcast or something, my favorite podcast, and I can't get it right away. It, that This is how we consume things nowadays. And it's completely different than the way that we, we used to. There was a story over the weekend about the exclusive company. The exclusive company is a chain of record stores. And, and yes, I, I said that correctly, record stores. You know, the old-fashioned vinyl records and for those of you who do not know of what i speak bear with me for just a second before there was streaming and before there was itunes and mp3s and things of the like before there were cds there were these things called records and they 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 were on they were vinyl and you could have record albums 
and the album would contain an, a number of songs by a particular artist. And there were also, and, and, and they were like 33 and a third revolutions. And then there were also the old 45s. And these were what we would call were singles. And I remember when I was a young kid, I first started buying music. You could go to a record store and you could buy a, a single. And it had an A side and it had a B side on it. And then you'd put it on your record player and, and you would you would play it. And that's, you know, that's how they determined what the most popular songs were because they're the ones that ended up selling the most. So they're vinyl records. Now, vinyl records were great because they, they sounded great. And if you were, again, if you were of my age uh, in high school and particularly in college, the, the really cool kids are the ones that had the great stereo systems. And you had the turntable with the really, really expensive, like, needle that you would, would put on there. And you'd have the great speakers. And then you'd have, you know, all the other stuff, the receiver that powered the thing. And you would spend all sorts of time shopping and you would actually go to the store and you would go to a record store and as you wandered through the record store what they had is they had the records the actual the vinyl records in the record albums in the album covers and there was a period of time where it probably cost ten times as much to do an album cover as it actually cost to produce the record itself but you you'd look through there and they'd have sections of okay these are all the Beatles song records and you'd go through and you look at the Beatles records that they had and these are the Rolling Stone records and this is the Elvis Presley records or the Jimmy Buffett records or whatever and you'd go through there and and actually at some of these record stores you could actually even take the record and you could go into to a booth and you could listen to a song or two to tell you whether you liked it or not so the exclusive company has been it is a record store the first exclusive company opened in 1956 in West Bend and they have a handful of stores around Appleton Green Bay Greenfield and Oshkosh but they've had one on Farwell Avenue that has been there um, forever I mean, at least the last 30 years and maybe more, selling vinyl records. Well, the story is that um, on Friday, the exclusive company announced that its east side Milwaukee location is going to close. Now, a couple of the employees are trying to work out a deal where they can be maybe reopen it under a different name, and, and, and that may or, or may not work. You certainly wish them the best. But it's, it's an old-fashioned record store. Now, I understand that, that vinyl is making a bit of a comeback because there are some audiophiles that just think it's got the best sound possible, and, and they, they like it. And, and some people, again, there's that retro thing as well that's out there. And, gee, I remember back when I had the Techniques turntable and I had the such-and-such such stylus that was on the, on the, the arm of the, uh, the, the record player and things like that. But by and large, people have, have pushed aside the, the albums and the vinyl stuff for, for convenience because it, it's just a, a lot easier to stream stream your music nowadays without having to worry about you know the vinyl records that you've got to make sure are stored somewhere and that's why I was thinking there's a Todd Snyder song that I was quoting earlier about got this big old uh, pile of dusty vinyl records you know sitting on his floor in in my the basement of my house I have a big old box that has all sorts of records from when I was a kid. Now, I haven't taken the best care of them, so I'm not sure whether, you know, they're warped or stuff. Haven't played them for years. And by the way, I don't have a, I don't even have an ability to play them anymore. 
I've gotten past the whole idea of vinyl, but with the exclusive company closing, I, I know, hey, look, it's tough to be you know, a brick-and-mortar business now, but they're a niche. But I know it's a niche that people are exploring. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In 2022, is there still a market for people who want to listen to music on the old vinyl records? 855-616-1620. And I'm not just talking about records that you might have had in your collection for years. I'm talking about going out and actually buying new releases, because some artists I know are doing that. Is there an interest on going back to to vinyl? Are we ready to go back to the future, or is that just horse and buggy technology? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Several people are texting me saying, Jeff, and you're going through the music history. You left out cassettes and eight-track tapes. That, that's true. I can remember when I was in high school, I knew people, their cassette player in their car cost more than their car or was worth more than their car. And in eight-tracks, well, eight-tracks is a whole different breed of animal. Jeff, my 28-year-old son has a turntable and a bunch of vinyl albums. He went through my collection and has purchased many himself. He's been on the waiting list at the exclusive company a couple times waiting for new releases. He likes the ritual of playing them which is kind of interesting. Let's start with Steve in Milwaukee. Steve, you're first. Good afternoon. Oh, I've been selling records for over 50 years. Now, I was at a record show in Chicago yesterday. We had over 100 tables there, four or 500 people there. In 10 hours, I sold $7,000. Now, I can understand the exclusive company or any physical store closing because they got to pay for the rent, the building, the help. So it's not good much more for them. But as far as like going to a show or advertising on the web, yeah, there's a big demand yet. But in 1977, we sold 350 million records. Last year, we sold 40 million. So it's only about 10%. But that's still a lot of people looking for records. What do you attribute that to? What, what do you think it is? Is it... Is it... I, I don't know, the, the sort of nostalgic thing? Is it the sound quality? What do you think it is? Most of the people actually that are there at the shows are people in their 50s. They've been buying them okay. all the years. They got used to listening to that. They don't like digital. They don't like okay. streaming or subscription or CDs. So they keep on doing what they've been doing for 50 years. Okay, thanks for calling. You know, make, makes sense, and I mean, I, and I know there's a, a market, and it's kind of a niche market. Jeff, I'm 32. My wife is 30. We love spinning records on a quiet evening. I know it's not as convenient as streaming, but um, the novelty of its fun is here and there. The first texter was talking about how you know you kind of like the the ritual of that. And I I sort of understand. There's people. Shaving is an example of that. There, there's people, for me, it's just, okay, you got to shave every day. But there's some people who really like, they like the ritual of it, and they do all sorts of things, and they take a process that I try to do in 30 seconds to get through it, that they, they turn it into several minutes. I, I think probably records are like this as well. Jeff, there's a huge demand with vinyl. Actually, there's also currently a big delay in vinyl pressing companies via uh, construction. I buy a lot of music on vinyl, mostly 50s and 60s music, but now also um, new artists as well. Let's talk to uh, Joe in Richfield. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Joe. Yeah, I, wanted, I didn't know if you knew this, but last year was the first year in the ages that albums actually outsold CDs. And I was in the exclu- exclusive company like seven years ago, 
and I couldn't believe they were selling a turntables, yeah, the old-fashioned way. Yeah. And and a lot of people like the sound of a, a vinyl. It's a softer sound, and a, whatever, for whatever reason, but. It's like you said. It's a neat, a niche market. Yeah. But you did you didn't mention to, about the exclusive company that the the owner died. Yeah. And yeah. And once he died, that there wasn't anybody to take over. He was the last guy, so they were going to close the stores. But the one they do they do good. But if you walk into a store, you expect to see CDs, and you see. Hundreds and hundreds of albums that you didn't see, you know, like in the 80s or 90s. Yeah, it's like the old days, Joe. Thanks. No, you're exactly right. It's like the old days. There's no, there's no question about it. And 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 I understand it's making a little bit of a comeback, Jeff. I have six stereos in my house and Bluetooth speakers on my patio, but I still love my albums. I do have a turntable and over 300 albums, and I purchase five to ten each year to add to my collection. By the way, I also have probably have 500-plus discs. I will, though, admit my Apple Music library is pretty darn easy. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, at some point in time, you go with the you know convenience that's there. Jeff, I know several people that buy albums both new and vintage. Mike in New London. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, I'm 67, and uh, about 25 years ago, I bought a 145 jukebox and uh, have that in our family room right now. And it's kind of funny because once in a while we have some people over and we'll sit back and, and, you know, crank it up and, and listen to it. We get, get some pretty good conversations going. And so you've got the old 40, you've got the old 45, the old 45, the singles that are on, on the jukebox. Right. I've got uh, an old row, 86 model jukebox and uh that holds 100 and i used to back in the day get 45s from mean mountain music down in milwaukee and uh i know that they've been out of business for a number of years and it's getting kind of hard to find some now but uh every once in a while if i if i'm looking for something in particular we got to dig a little bit for them no, but it's very cool. Dave, thanks for the call. No, it's very cool. Matter of fact, I have a, I have a friend who lives in West Bend and, and his house in like the, uh, like in the, they have a room for like their grandkids and it's got a jukebox in it. I've, we've never actually like, I, at least I haven't been there when we played, when they played songs on it and stuff, but it, it's all very cool. It, and it's a throwback. And I mean, I just thought this was kind of interesting because my guess is there, there, there is still a market for this. Jeff, I've got three turntables and love listening to my records. I will always keep listening to them when I can. I think it's very cool.